Well, that was no fun. Not anything that Jesse just did, but what I did for the past couple of weeks. But it's so good to be back. Um, can we just restart? Also, um, before, we, before I go any further, if you have kids in here and um, want to take them back to kids, let's take a second and you can, you can do that. I'll, I'll kind of talk through this. But um, yeah, um, here's, here's, what it, here's what it felt like a bit. You guys ever watch those compilation videos of um, athletes who celebrate too soon? Right, and then only to like, like I'm gonna do the dance before I actually cross the goal line, and then yeah, that's kind of what it felt like. But I do want to thank all of you guys for just your outpouring of love and concern to our family. I'm assuming also I don't want to put words in Austin's mouth, but but I know he feels the same. Now we're safe, we feel good, um, we're back at it. I'm very thankful um, to have not, you know, had it super bad, um, and then also not spread it to my family. So. We're all here. We are safe now. Um, we're well past our quarantine time, so we hope that you guys feel safe with that. And uh, yeah, we're just going to keep keep moving ahead and uh, believe that God's got us, and it'll be good. So stay safe and healthy, and and uh, we're going to dig into this. So one of the consequences is we had to miss like such a key passage of scripture last week, which is Mark chapter eleven. Which you get this right. You get Jesus um, in his triumphal entry. Now. We kind of set it up with your guys' time at the digital liturgy last week to, to say, like, yeah, it's triumphal, um, but that was short-lived, and then it's really anticlimactic in what unfolds last week, right? Jesus rolls into town. He fulfills some prophecies. He's met with, like, an overwhelming and resounding welcome, right, by the people. They're screaming and shouting praises that their Messiah King has arrived, um, but that turns really quick for them, right? Turns really quick in that um, Jesus shows up, and he doesn't settle for that either. He disrupts um, the temple. He has a weird conversation about a fig tree, but what really occurs is in that turn from being received to, to like a questionable response is that the religious leaders of the day start once again to confront. And it's this looming confrontation that carries a tone all the way through the book of Mark. We see it from time to time. The religious leaders, different sects, will step up and confront Jesus and trying to entrap him. Jesus is very problematic to their systems, very problematic to their authority, very problematic to their power. Um, so one of the things that's important to recognize in this as Jesus shows up and confronts the religious leaders or as they confront him, I've said this before, it's easy to just like kind of frame them up as the antagonists in the story and assume that Jesus despises them and that Jesus wants to tear down everything that they're about. But the reality is that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is lovingly, although very sternly, confronting the religious leaders. He's pointing to them to where they are effectively not understanding the gospel um, and confronts them in that. But the confrontation in Jesus's mind is to pull them out of um, their religious systems and practices to understand the gospel so they would submit to King Jesus and come under his authority and his kingdom. So fast forward to chapter 12, and there's just more of that, right? There's, we're going to have more confrontations um, Jesus sets up this little parable at the beginning that we didn't look at. It's a parable of the tenants. It's like barely a parable, though, because it's so clear as to what Jesus means in that. But it continues to establish Jesus's confrontation of the religious leaders of the day and their hearts 
that were not bending towards the gospel and the truth. They were only deeper entrenching themselves in a way of life that enforced their own authority and power but did not acknowledge God. So Jesus kind of says, like, man, you guys are just being bad stewards of the mission that I gave you as the people of Israel. That's what that parable is about. Then when it launches into this passage that we're going to look at today, we got to keep in mind Jesus is like just a few short days away from going to the cross in this passage, and the religious leaders have once again laid, at least in their minds, this airtight trap. Like we're going to confront him, we're going to be able to accuse him, and we're going to be able to show um, that he's blasphemous and then remove him from the scene. So let's just jump right back into this and look at starting with verse 12. And there's like these three series of confrontations. There, it's really one, but different leaders show up and ask different questions. So here's what we see in, in verse 12, or verse 13, excuse me, right away from chapter 13. And they sent him to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk, right? So it's clear, like their intentions are clear out of the gate. Um, it's important to understand the distinction, though, between these two groups. And we've done a lot of work in this series about who the Pharisees were. Um, and so we're not going to go super deep into that. But just keep in mind, Jesus has been confronted before by the Pharisees, by really every single one of these groups that we're going to take a look at today. And Jesus, in these confrontations, he just kind of continues to like shake it off, right? He shakes off all of their accusations like he's in a Taylor Swift video from 2014, right? He just shakes it all off. But this particular series of questions really like kind of forces their hand. And so um, once again, he's confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, just for kind of a, a placemat to land on with them, um, they were a group of leaders. And what they wanted was a cultural and ethnically and really religiously pure Israel, which meant that they were no friends or fans of Rome who were currently occupying Israel. And so they wanted to dispel Rome. They did not like their influence both on their culture um, and on their way of life. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about what it meant to be a Pharisee than just that. But for our purposes today, think Pharisees, they want Rome out, right? They want to dismantle the institutions and the seats of power that uphold oppressive Roman rule. Now you've got the Herodians on the other hand, and they wanted to actually lean more into the influence and power of Herod's authority, who was king over, over Israel, and they wanted that to increase and actually persist, which meant since Herod was a friend and kind of established through Rome and all of his power came through Rome, the Herodians actually wanted Rome to stay. So you've got two groups of people that are just diametrically opposed in their idea of what should be happening in Israel, right? You've got one group that wanted to eradicate Roman influence and power. They want it gone from Israel. And then you've got one group in the Herodians that wanted Roman influence and culture to be maintained through King Herod's rule. So you could not have, again, two ideologies that are further apart from each other. And what's happening in this text is they both despise and oppose and feel threatened by Jesus and his disciples so much that they perceive him to be such a threat to their preferences and to their ideologies that they put those differences aside and they team up and they plot and they maneuver against Jesus. And they think in this case, with this particular question, they've got Jesus once again like dead to rights, right? And again, Jesus is going to kind of shake it off very brilliantly with this. 
but don't hear Jesus pushing them away. Hear Jesus drawing them out of religion, drawing them to the heart of the gospel here. So, verse 14, and they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, right? Um, Which they're really condescending to Jesus here, right? For, For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly each or teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So we know that they're not truly giving Jesus compliments here, right? Because they've already said in previous engagements that they don't believe that he teaches the truth. In fact, they think he's a blasphemer. So, so they're condescending to Jesus. They're like, hey, we know that everything you, you know, teach is, is true because um, they don't actually believe that. And, and so they ask him this pointed question, what what should we do with this tax situation here? Like, should we, should we just pay the taxes or should we not, right? So they believe, once again, they've laid this perfect trap and we've got to kind of do a little bit of work here to understand the heart of their question, right? And um, during Roman occupation, we need to understand that the people were just suffering under these like stifling and oppressive taxes and everyone, regardless of your occupation, regardless of your income, you had to pay once a year, you had to pay the sum of one denarius, which was the equivalent of one of your day's wages to Rome in these like head or poll taxes is what they were called. And basically they were meaningless. They just meant that you're paying for the privilege of like being ruled by Rome and, and being under Caesar's authority. So they approach, G- so they were wildly, of course, unpopular in Israel. They're like, man, like in effect, we're paying these taxes to a foreign occupying force and we don't benefit from it. We just get more oppressed. So they were wildly unpopular amongst the people. So they approach Jesus and they ask him, hey, do we really need to do this? Like, is it rightful for us as Israel to pay these taxes? And in their minds, it's an impossible question. You can't, like, he can't say yes to this and he can't say no to this because if he says no, then he's got a huge target on his back from Rome, right? They will see his answer as being seditious, right? Um, you're not paying taxes. Are you leading some type of revolt? And more than likely, they would execute Jesus and his followers. But if he says, yes, just pay the taxes, the problem with that is the people will think he's a fraud and a sellout. He's been talking all along about the kingdom of God, that it's here, that it's present, that, it's, that, it's, that I'm bringing it and ushering it in. And for the people, that meant Jesus leading an, ins- an insurrection and ousting the foreign occupiers, right? So in their minds, this is, this is a situation for Jesus that he's, he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't, right? Because one of the reasons they're asking this question is they had seen examples of what happens when you refuse to pay taxes like 20 years before this. Within Jesus's lifetime, there was a guy named Judas the Galilean, which is an awesome way to be named, right? The city that you're after. So from now on, I just, we, we're gonna call Matt. It's gonna be Matt the Albanite, right? Are you ready to own that? It's Matt the Albanite, right? And, and so this guy, Judas the Galilean, he leads a revolt and he, he and his followers refused to pay taxes to Rome. And you can imagine what happened. The Romans brutally eradicated him and his followers from the scene. So they know what happens if you refuse to pay taxes. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are thinking Jesus is he's probably gonna say no in which case he would be labeled a dissident and the Romans would simply do their job for them. The problem with their plan is Jesus is just simply smarter than them, right? So look at verse 15. But, but knowing their hypocrisy, um, he said to them, 
why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and, and let me look at it, right? So he's like, here's the object of your question, this coin. And so they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, like super famous passage of scripture, right? You guys have heard this before. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Like it makes its way out of the Bible and it's quoted like just in movies and like it's a popular phrase here. So, so what is Jesus saying? What's the heart of that, right? Notice they ask Jesus a really simple yes or no question. Should we do this or should we not? And so there's really just these two answers. There's yes or there's no, but Jesus responds with really a question of his own, right? Whose face is on this coin? So this is roughly an example of what this coin would have looked like, right? And then, so Jesus is like, well, who's represented on this coin? Whose face is on this coin? And then he answers, it's Caesar's, so give to Caesar what belongs to him, which is this coin. That's fine, it belongs to him, but give to God what belongs to him. So, in our translations, a little bit of this gets lost because the word that Jesus uses in his question that we translate likeness in our text, it also means image, right? And that's kind of the key to unlocking this whole thing. So Jesus is really saying, like, whose image is on this coin, right? And, 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 and then what does it say? What's the inscription? So, so the, the front of the coin would have had Caesar on it, Tiberius Caesar, and this is, again, close enough to this time period. This is roughly what this would look like. And on the back would be an image of his mom. And the inscription on the front would say Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine or son of God. And then on the back, it would read high priest. So the image on the coin was Caesar and then his mom. And the inscription was this, son of God, high priest. Caesar is the son of God and he is the high priest, right? That's who... Rome was, and that's who Caesar was to Rome. So, so very simply, because we don't have time to go into all the complexities of like, what's going on here? But what Jesus is saying to Caesar, or to, to, the, to the Pharisees and the Herodians is, yeah, it's an easy answer. Give to Caesar the things that have his image on them, right? So if it has Caesar's image on it, it belongs to him, give it to him. You're, you're fine in doing that. But give to God what has his image on it which is what? It's, it's you, right? So he tells these Pharisees, yeah, you're fine to give to Caesar. That's reasonable. But don't give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar, what does not have his image on it, which is you, which is your heart, your soul, the very fabric of, of who you are. And so there's a principle that goes way beyond what Jesus is saying here, right? Deeper than just giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, like giving Caesar his money, right? And it's really, I think, fitting for the time that we find ourselves in also. So really what Jesus is going at, and it's much deeper in what he's emphasizing, he's saying, hey, Caesar demands ultimate control and authority over your life. It's inescapable to have oppressive Rome over you, and that's the goal. But Jesus is saying, it's okay, you can, and you should render or give to Caesar what is appropriate to render to him. That's fine, you should do that. But give to God what is stamped with his image, and that's you. You bear the image of God, and that does not and will never belong to Caesar. It only belongs to God. So here's what I think Jesus wanted them to see, and I think it's what he wants us to see today. And, and keep in mind, like both groups here are hedging 
all of their bets on an ideology or a political solution to really what is their greatest problem. And Jesus is saying, your hope will never be rooted in this world. Your hope is not in a government, it's not in an ideology, it's not in a system, it's not in an institution. Our hope is not to find favor with any government. Our identity is not intrinsically tied to any political party, and our mission is not simply to be on the right side of history. Our hope is in Christ and his finished work and resurrection, and our identity is firmly rooted in our unique image-bearer status, and our mission is to be on the right side of the gospel and Jesus' eternal kingdom. Right? So Jesus doesn't give them a simple answer. He doesn't give them the answer that they want. He doesn't say, no, don't pay the tax, revolt and tear the system down. He says, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God before you're anything. He doesn't give them an easy out here, right? But he also doesn't say, yes, yes, pay the tax and become a mindless, soulless part of the system. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yes, responsibly and engage and participate in the system, right? Be a life-giving part of the system and place and government that you find yourself in, but never misplace your trust and your hope. Always remember that you bear the image of God, not Caesar, and for us, the reality is this. You do not bear the image of the American flag, and your first and ultimate allegiance is not to a political system or an ideology or a country or an empire or whatever political, political party is, is, is stamped on your voter ID. Your citizenship is firmly established in Jesus' shalom-filled kingdom. So Jesus would say, don't give your heart and your very essence to something, Caesar, your country, a political ideology, a system to something that it does not belong to. It only belongs to God. So Jesus is getting at something so much deeper here than should you pay taxes or not. He's saying, yes, be involved to the point at which it's responsible for us as Christ followers to be involved, but never give to that system what it can never own, which is the very essence of who you are made in the image of God. So it's important for us to understand because we have a tendency to misplace our hope all the time, right? Like our hope is, is always misplaced when you establish it in a, in a particular ideology or, or system, right? But it's important to know that Jesus is not calling them here to not be engaged. He's saying, yeah, do your civic duty, right? Like, like don't be apolitical here or, or don't be politically agnostic or ambiguous. Engage in it in the way that you're supposed to, right? So that means that we don't disengage. We don't separate ourselves from any political process or the culture around us. We engage it, but in a way that reveals that our hope is not ultimately in that system or that institution. Our hope is not found in the church finding favor or sidling up to the seats of power or authority in any country. In fact, if you look at the history and, and of the church and, and really the present-day reality of the church, it's this. The gospel moves and advances and disciples are made when the church actually loses its favor. Like when it can no longer sidle up to like 
the worldly seats of authority and power, and it finds itself out of favor with those institutions. That's when the church goes underground, and it begins to grow and spread and advance like a mustard seed, right? And so we'll talk about this this fall when we get to 1 Peter, but the church by definition and by its very nature was always meant to be an exile to this world, right? I would argue that it's only when the church understands its exilic nature, that it is set apart, that it's actually freed up to thrive and to flourish and to live out its mission. So despite what happens here in our country or in the world, we need to embrace that We've been sent here to advance the gospel, to live out the kingdom, and we need to constantly remind ourselves to not be anxious, to rehearse in our very souls the great hope that we have in Christ and in his kingdom. So that's that first part. Next up is the Sadducees, right? So, so jump down to, to verse 18, and we're going to read all of this together. This is, this is a, a, it's a crazy thing. Um, what the Sadducees bring, right? It's a bit absurd here. So let's look at it all together because it makes a little bit more sense altogether. Their argument, their question. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they ask him a question. Teacher, so they, they don't believe in the resurrection, right? Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise, again, what do the Sadducees not believe in? We're going to cover this here in a second. They don't actually even believe in that. When they rise again, whose life will, will she be, or whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. That's a lot to unpack there, right? So here's, let me just say this. First of all, like we're not the point of this is not to be to prove or disprove whether y'all are going to be married in heaven, right? It's not even actually what Jesus is going to attempt here. It's a passage of scripture that's often pointed to that, but we got to keep in mind the whole framework of what's happening here. Like each different group is stepping up. They're taking a swing at Jesus. They're trying to knock him down. This is the Sadducees attempt, right? So who are the Sadducees? Well, they're a group of like the like small sect of like priestly families in Israel, right? So they were wealthy aristocrats. Uh, they enjoyed really significant influence and power over the political and religious life of the people of Israel. Um, and they were also very open to embracing outside influences, unlike the Pharisees, right? So they considered only the book of Moses. So that's the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, as authoritative. So that's the only thing that they held to, right? So in their theology, they did not believe in the immortality of the soul or in the future bodily resurrection. So their, their, their question is odd in that they're asking Jesus about what's going to happen in the resurrection, but it's something they don't actually believe in. The ancient historian Josephus said this. He said, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with bodies, right? So their belief is there's nothing beyond this. 
but they're asking Jesus the question, what happens beyond this, right? So because they only held to the Pentateuch, you have to keep in mind, they were not looking for a Messiah king from David's line, right? That, come, that Davidic covenant comes later, so they're not looking to that. They're not looking to Messiah, at least in the way that we would see Messiah coming through David's line. And so they certainly were not looking for a Messiah to show up to give life through his death and through his resurrection. So that's who they were. That's important to kind of understand the question. So their question is this, right? They basically ask this question about, they, they, they give this like absurd scenario, right? Here's this woman and here's her husband, right? They're talking about leveret marriage. And leveret marriage is the Latin, leveret is the Latin term for, for brother-in-law, right? So think the story of Judah and Tamar, if you know that story, which is one of my favorite stories. Or like think about the book of Ruth, right? So it's kind of that kinsman redeemer language. It's leveret marriage. That's what they're looking at. I think it's Deuteronomy 25 kind of walks through where, where God instituted that. So basically, so this seems foreign and odd to us in our culture, like the thought of like, if I die, does like my brother-in-law, like that's weird, right? So but here's what we need to see in this. God is making a provision in this, in leveret marriage, for a family to ensure that it would receive the blessing and inheritance due to it in case the husband dies and has no male heir, right? So the, the, the lineage would follow through the line of the father and through the sons. So in that case, in that scenario that they bring up, the line would just end. All the blessings and inheritance would go away. So the Sadducees, they manufacture this like absurd and ridiculous argument here. A man marries, marries a woman and, and then he dies. He has six brothers who can fulfill the leveret obligation. So then she marries the next one and he dies. And then she marries the next one and he dies. So like all seven brothers die without, in, this, in their manufactured scenario here, die without bearing a child, right? So this is like seven brothers for one bride, but there's no dancing or singing, just dying at this point. So, and then she dies, right? So then they're like, so what happens in the resurrection? So the question was, who should be married to or who would she be married to in this new world to come? And the Sadducees are really saying they believe the whole idea of Jesus teaching resurrection is absurd. It's an absurd idea to begin with. So for them, they're asking this question and they think that it reveals like the foolishness of believing in a future resurrection. So they would argue that the books of Moses do not mention any future resurrection, therefore it doesn't exist, right? So despite Jesus already have spoken of his own resurrection at least three times alone in Mark, like alluding to it or just calling it out, right? The Sadducees, they think they have him cornered. Like Jesus now has to be forced to teach a doctrine that they don't believe in. It's going to reveal that he's a false teacher, okay? So Jesus doesn't hesitate, right? He just comes right back at him. He doesn't even hesitate for a minute to kind of set them straight. And how does he do that? He just says, here's the deal. You don't know the scriptures, therefore you don't know the power of God. So Jesus tells them plainly, like, you're just deceived. He accuses these theological elite of their day of being uninformed in their area of expertise, right? He's arguing, like, what you claim to know best, the Torah, you actually know the least. And, and because they misunderstand the Bible, they also misunderstand who God is, which is always true. Like, when we misinterpret scriptures, right? When we look at it through our own lens, 
um, it's always going to lead to a distorted view of God. It's going to lead to that God that you develop through your own distorted lens, just being too small and too impotent to actually be the God of the Bible. So then Jesus begins correcting them in verse 25, and his argument rests in this idea. The world of resurrection that he is creating through his resurrection, through the power of it, is just simply so different than the world that we live in, right? There's continuity to be sure, right? I will be you and you will be me, but we will live for eternity in an entirely new reality in this new city with these new bodies, right? So Revelation 21.1 says it's a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So Jesus addresses the Sadducees question. He's like, yes, there will be a resurrection. There will be no marriage relationships, at least as we know it in this life. And then he says, we're going to become like angels, right? Which is weird. Basically, he means that probably in the sense in that law, like we will no longer like procreate when we die, right? So, so therefore, marriage, he's saying, is not going to be necessary, at least for that purpose, okay? Now listen, no one is going to be disappointed in the eternal reality of heaven right? So I don't want to confuse and muddy the waters with you guys going like, are we going to be married? Are we not going to be married? Is there going to be sex in heaven, right? That's like one of the greatest questions. That's one of the greatest jokes about this particular passage is it's teaching about sex in the end times, which is sure to gain an audience, right? So we need to understand Jesus is not saying that we're going to be disappointed with the eternal reality that we call heaven. No one's going to be deprived of one thing that is necessary to them for maximum joy and happiness and complete satisfaction. Like our relationship with Jesus and with all of our brothers and sisters, like this new covenant eternal family will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all of all our like earthly like understanding of, of what we experience now is going to seem so small in comparison. So Jesus is setting up to say, yes, there's a resurrection, but if you look at the resurrection through the lens of what you're experiencing, which is what their question is about, through an earthly lens, you'll just never grasp how good it's going to be and how real it's going to be. So Jesus decimates the Sadducees really on their own turf, but also Jesus in grace meets them where they're at. Again, we view them as antagonists. He doesn't. He views them as image bearers whom he created and loves and so desperately wants to come and experience life in his kingdom. So, what he does in his answer is he takes them to this particular point that they would have known, right? Because it occurs in, in the book of Exodus. So they take some really to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and it's that unfolding scene where Moses is confronted with the very presence of Yahweh, right? In, in the form of that burning bush. And, and so where God shows up and he actually speaks audibly to Moses in the present tense, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? Notice it wasn't in the response. Jesus does not say, I was their God. God doesn't show up when he shows up to Moses and say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am their God, right? So he points to this reality. Jesus points to the covenant that God made, right? And it's just, the reality is this, it's just not possible that the eternal God does not maintain an eternal covenant with his people. And so Jesus is really pointing them to this covenant with Moses, with Abraham that he makes, right? 
This is how Tim Keller explains it, and I think it's so brilliant. It's way better than I can. He says, Notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death, like the Greeks did, on the idea of an immortal part of us. So it has nothing to do with us. Rather, he rests it in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. So what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, like, it's the same thing that he did with the coin. Like, you're thinking you can trap me by only thinking about the reality of our hope that it's tied to something worldly and it's tied to a worldly system that's broken and sinful and flawed. And you need to think eternally. And then he's doing the same thing here with this question. And he's forcing them to say, listen, you can trust in the covenant that God made with his people. Who did God say he was? He said he's the God of people that are now long dead. He's presently their God because God will fulfill his covenant. So there will be this new reality formed through Christ. So that really brings their attempt to, to do him in to like a swift end, right? Because, because he's saying God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. The Sadducees are wrong. Jesus effectively silences critics once again. He's saying our ultimate and final hope is in the resurrection. It's in the reality that death is not the final answer for us because God is not the God of dead things. He's the God King of the living. So this next section, and we'll wrap it up here, Jesus is going to walk us through, right, this reality. Like, where does our hope then emanate, right? Where is it truly from? So let's look at this next little interaction, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, ask him which commandment is the most important of all. So a scribe, just think like a religious like attorney. Like they would have known the law in and out and argued for the law. So this scribe comes up and asks this question, which is the commandment is the most important of all. Like we do that all the time, right? We're always on the hunt for like what is the most important, what is the best. What's the best burrito? Who's the best basketball player? Like we always ask ultimate questions. What is the most important thing that we should do here, right? So you have to commend the persistence of this particular scribe, right? Because they probably witnessed Jesus just eviscerate each and every one of these previous groups that have come up to them with a question, and yet they just keep coming at him, right? So his question, though, is a bit different from the previous ones. He asks Jesus, Okay, which commandment is the most important of all of the commandments, right? What he's really asking Jesus is this. What's the most important thing that I need to do? So, which is a question that I think we all ask, right? Like, if we're honest, like, we've asked the question, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get right with God? What, what do I need to do to get God to accept me? Some of us ask the question, what do I need to do to get God off my back, right? We've asked that question, what do I need to do a lot in our lives? Like, we still ask it. It's why we desperately need the gospel to inform us of the truth. So he brings this question about the law, right? So what we need to understand, in the Torah, there's 613 of these laws found in the Torah. 365 of them were like negative, like don't do these things. 248 of them were positive, like, do these things. So some of them were light, and they just made less demands, right? While others were viewed as heavy, and they carried severe consequences and repercussions for disobeying them. 
So that's a lot to keep track of, right? So he's like, hey, can you just distill this down to like, what's the most important thing, right? And again, we do that all the time. Where's the best place to eat in town? Where's that we want to go and experience? Like, what's the most important thing, right? But we see Jesus doing this and he kind of flips the question on itself, right? He, he defines what and why this one thing is ultimate. In verse 29 through 31, he says, Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus' response, like at the front of it, it's like, it's really simple, right? The first is this, love God. And he's quoting there from what is known as the great Shema, which is a central passage to the life and the identity of Israel. And it served as a confession. It was kind of like a creed. It would be recited by faithful followers of Judaism twice a day. You can find it in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and it basically reads just like that. But here's how it breaks down. The Lord, which is Yahweh, is our God, Elohim, and the Lord Yahweh is one. So this is at the very heart and soul of Judaism. They've got Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, right? And Yahweh is his covenant name. It's what he declared his covenant name to be to his people. And so this statement means this. Yahweh is our God and our only God. Yahweh is one. He is unified and unique in essence and in existence. He alone is God. There is no other, right? So, so they were to be a people whose central and singular focus was Yahweh. And they would love their God with every fabric of their being, both individually and collectively, right? So it's a statement of worship to the people. And then Jesus adds this secondary piece. He borrows it from Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's very intentional on Jesus' part because he wants us to see this. How you respond to the first loving God will really determine how you respond to the second, which is loving your neighbor. So, so when you obey the second, it shows that you have embraced the first. So, so growing out of my love and devotion for God is that I love those who are created in his image. And we got to go back to Keller again, because he explains this and articulates this so well. Once again, he says, Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life. So it's not separated from the law. And he shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. Most of us don't associate law and love, right? Those are two things that we see the tension between often, and we want to resolve them by either just saying, I'm the law follower, I'm the rule follower, or I'm the love person, right? And Jesus, and, and the statement that Jesus makes here, like we see how these things go together. So when Jesus says, all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he is saying we have not fulfilled the law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits, but we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love, right? So you fulfill the law by loving and you love by fulfilling the law, not dismissing it. So Jesus isn't saying, you know what, you're right. 613, Moses was just wrong. That's not manageable at all. I'll replace all of those and just give you two simple ones to follow. He's not saying that. What he is saying is 
all of the 613 laws fall under these two, right? So they find themselves in these two, which is love God and love neighbors. That encapsulates all the other laws. And then look at the scribe responds in verse 32. And the scribe said to them, you are right, teacher. So he affirms him. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. So besides him. So that's affirming the Shema, right? Jesus, you're not like being blasphemous there. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Like, so to distill it down for the people, the way in which you love God is not found in your offerings or sacrifices, but it's in loving him with very fabric, right, of who you are. So think, like, give to God what is his, which is you. Like, you bear his image. You're giving Jesus, or you're giving God, you're giving Yahweh all of yourself, right? So, so he actually affirms Jesus. He's like, Jesus, you're spot on. You're right, He's like, there's nothing to refute or correct about your answer. But then Jesus has kind of a, a, a rather odd response for him in verse 34. He says, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So like, you catch that, right? Like his affirmation of saying that I believe the same things that you believe, Jesus. Jesus is still saying, that's good. And you're not far from the truth of this. You're not far from the kingdom of God, right? So Jesus, he's pleased with the guy's answer. He's like, hey, you're there. He's like, you're, you're almost there. But what did Jesus mean by that? It's not like, ah, you're so close. Like, try harder. Just work harder from here, right? Rather, the man has come to see this, that entering the kingdom of God is a matter of heart devotion and submission, not hard duty. Obeying rules and regulations will never get us into the kingdom because I can never measure up to God's perfect standard. That's what the law reveals. So we need something better than the law. We need the gospel, right? Which is this, I need a new me. I need a new heart. I need the grace and the mercy of God who can make me a new creation in Christ. I need to draw near to Jesus who has brought the kingdom of God near to me. So, so, so we draw near and we enter the kingdom, not by religion, but by relationship to Christ, a relationship that results in loving God supremely and others genuinely, right? So the cross tells us that Jesus loves God supremely. It tells us he loves God genuinely. So the way to draw near to God is through Jesus. Think about that conversation that Jesus has with Martha as she's staring down the reality of her brother who is dead. And what does Jesus say? He says, look to me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So the way that we draw near to God, the way that we love God and love others is not go and try harder. The reality is we can't perfectly love God. We can't perfectly love others. But we look to Jesus who did, right? And, and so that's why this guy misses it because he hears what Jesus says and he walks and says, he walks away and says, okay, I got this. I can do this. Like I can love God perfectly and love others perfectly, right? But the reality is you cannot perform your way into loving God because Jesus has already made the way. Jesus is 
the only one to perfectly love God and perfectly love people. And so we draw near to the heart of Jesus, and we recognize this is just simply something that we can't do. But the amazing news of the gospel is he did it in your place. The gospel that so richly and complexly is filled at every turn with beauty and life and hope. And it's so incredibly simple at the same time because the most expression of the gospel is this, Jesus in your place. And that's what this guy is missing. Here, here's Jesus say, love God and love others. And he's like, cool, I'll go away and do that. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have to because that burden has been rested upon me, right? The guy thinks the burden is upon him. But Jesus says, listen, you didn't come to fulfill or abolish the law. I did. And so Jesus perfectly loves and fulfills the law by perfectly loving God in our place and perfectly loving others in our place. And so we need to remind and rehearse that to ourselves. Jesus already fulfilled this in your place. Yes, the gospel declares that Jesus took the full weight and penalty of our sin. And that's amazing. But if, if that's all it is, it kind of leaves us morally neutral to God. The gospel demands and also fulfills the demand that we are holy as he is holy. That's why it's not only that our sin was poured out on him, but it's that his righteousness was poured out on us. So how Jesus perfectly loves God and people is now how you love God and love people. Not because of you, like the scribe walks away going like, oh, I just have more to do, but because of him who has done it for you in your place. Love God, love people. I can't. Jesus did. That's the key to this passage. It's the key to the gospel. It's the key to how we do this. That's why it's Jesus, Restore Albany, not Hub City, Restore Albany. Because we're following Jesus in the goodness that he perfectly loves God, and he fulfilled that and showed that in his obedience, and he perfectly loves people. So we just got to follow Jesus in that. So, so, so my heart for you this morning is don't beat yourself up because you're not perfectly loving God and loving others. Look to Jesus who did and then love God and love others in the same way that Jesus does.